is a great time to be a teenager at Grace Community Fellowship with summer camp coming up. Uh, it's a great time to live in Eugene with a lot of exciting things happening in our city. We have the Eugene Marathon today. We have the world champion uh, track and field coming up this summer. Really anything to distract us from all the allergies. Just any distraction, I'll gladly, gladly take that. Uh, any track and field fans in the house this morning? Okay, yeah, a couple clappers. Uh, you may have heard that Josh Mitchell was an All-American track and field champion. And, uh, and if you heard that, you were lied to. I am, I am so sorry. Uh, I, I love track and field. I played it in high school, and I would describe myself as an athlete as okay. I was an okay athlete. Maybe I was good on my best day. Not great, but I was a solid okay. But I loved it, and one of the events that I was most excited about in high school was the shot put. It's a little bit of strength, a lot of finesse, and I remember my junior year in high school thinking like, I'm gonna go places with this, right? Like I was, I was improving, I was getting better, and just thinking like, yeah, this, is, this may be my thing, right? visions of full-ride scholarships and national championships, and uh, I had a single moment of glory. Now, I went to a small Christian or high school in Oregon, and on one single day, I won the track meet. We were playing a small school uh, on the coast. It was a logging town, and uh, the other guy uh, hurt his ankle, so I won. No, it's okay. There were a couple people who we were throwing, and I, I won the meet. And I had like this three and a half foot personal record, which like for Shopwit, that's, that's humongous. So I was feeling fantastic. I go home, and there's a website where it's a database of all the high school athletes in the nation. I pull myself up, and I'm in like the top maybe five or ten of our league, and I'm feeling, I'm feeling good, right? Top ten? That's pretty good. But then I start scrolling out, right? Uh, all of the leagues in your state conference, in the entire state, in the entire nation, and I just see my little number drop and drop and drop till when you get to the whole nation, I was number like 10,000. On my very best throw, that was probably a fluke. Don't know if I could ever do it again. And I'm thinking, man, no college is going after the 10,000th best shot putter, right? They're, they're just not, right? My own high school probably is like, I'm sorry, Josh, we can't take you anymore. So I had my very best on my very best day, didn't measure up, at least to what I thought I sh could be or should be. Have you ever felt that, that my best just doesn't measure up? I bet in some way, in some area of your life, you felt that. Maybe it's something that you have struggled with in the past. Maybe it's going on in your life right now but I just don't measure up. That feeling of inadequacy that I'm just not making. And there are definitely several areas that we feel this in our life, and I'm going to throw them up on the screen, and we can just go through them. If you're following along in our message in the handouts, you'll have a space where you can do that, or online through our uh, Bible app. 
let's just go through some of the areas where we have these feelings of inadequacy. The first one is probably with our families. Maybe we feel that we can't live up to our parents' expectations of us, whether we live with our parents or our parents have, have passed away. This, this sense of my parents had these dreams and these visions of my future, and I don't know if I can live up to it. Maybe you feel that you can't be the husband or wife that you feel that you should be or that you want to be. Maybe it's with your children. There's just something that you feel that you went wrong somewhere along the way. And you are not the child, the spouse, or the parent that you feel that you should be, despite your efforts. Maybe this is in your career. You feel that you can't live up to what your boss wants you to do. You can't hit that quota. You're passed up for all the good shifts, and you just feel that you can't get ahead. You can't make things happen. Maybe you tried and applied and interviewed, and you just can't even get your door in on the field that you feel that you are most passionate about. Maybe you feel that the door has been shut on the job or the career of your dreams. Maybe it's in the area of achievement. For all you high school students, college students, grad students, it's crazy how a number between one and four with a decimal point on it can sum up your entire worth as a person. 3.0, 4.0, it's a big difference. Where do you measure up? How much worth do you put in that? Maybe it's in your win and loss record. You have dreams of making a name for yourself, breaking records, but you just can't seem to get there. Or maybe, if you're like me, your area of inadequacy with achievement falls into what I call the to-do list trap. See if you've been there with me. I have this habit, I don't know if it's a good habit or a bad habit, probably in between, of making to-do lists. Because, you know, it's in all of the t best time management books, right? Be be uh, organized, create to-do list. But then what I'll do is I'll have my to-do list, right? There's the five things I want to do today, 10 things I want to do today, especially on a weekend. And then at the end of the day, I'll look at my list and I'll have only gotten two or five or six done. And six out of 10, I know, is not a passing grade. And I will say, I will feel that today was not a good day. I did not get done the things I should have done today. I failed. I am a failure. I had a bad day because I didn't do the things that I put on my list. In fact, some days I start the day off with maybe five things and at the end of the day there's 15 things on it. So I'm falling behind pace of all the things that I need to get done. It's the to-do list trap. We have set the standard. We've fallen below it. We can't even live up to our own standards, right? Well, personally, we have failings emotionally, mentally. We can't even live up to the things that we want to do, personal aspirations. Man, I really should be able to get out of bed when I say I'm getting out of bed. I really should be able to meet with the people I say I'm going to meet with. I shouldn't let what that person said affect me. I should be able to conquer these emotions and these thoughts, but I just can't, despite my effort, despite my struggle. And what about the spiritual realm? 
Maybe there are things in your faith that you've set as goals or things you wish you could do. Why can't I just read my Bible every day? I tried my best. How come I only pray when I'm in a panic situation? How come all of these spiritual things that I want to do or at one time I want to do, I just can't live up to it? Well, in all of these areas, I've fallen short. And you probably have feel that you've fallen short. And so what happens when, when we have that? Well, here's what inadequacy generates, right? There are these emotions, these feelings that come from it. One, obviously anxiety. This sense of I am not where I should be. I'm not who I should be. I'm not doing what I should be. Feelings of insecurity, what's wrong with me, I'm missing something, or even fear, something bad's going to happen, I'm going to lose something important to me, or just feelings of doubt, whether that is self-doubt or even spiritual doubts. Is God really real? Is he really powerful? Is he in control? I've prayed for these things. i prayed and sought God for things in life, and I have not seen the results that I expected or desired. Well, from these feelings, there are several different routes that we can take to deal with them. And let's put those up on the screen here, too. One of the things that can happen, we have these feelings of inadequacy and all of the emotions that they generate is just despair. We can just throw in the towel and give up and be like, my life will never look like I want to. My family will never be what I want to. I will never have the job that I want. I will never succeed in the areas I want to succeed and just despair. The other end of that is uh, called workaholism, right? Oh, I'll just work harder. I'll just do more. I'll work nights. I'll work weekends. I'll put in more hours. I'll stay up late. I'll get up early. I won't take any lunch breaks. I'll just work, work, work. And maybe if I put in 10 more hours, 20 more hours, then I'll get the results I magically want to see. We might fall into perpetual self-help, which is just, I need a tool. I just need that magical tool that once I find it, I need that book I need that Instagram account, that motivation. There's just, there's something out there that once I find it, once I learn my Enneagram number, right, then everything is going to fall into place. Or we go into self-medication, right? When those feelings of anxiety, of inadequacy and hurt start to just bubble up in our hearts and our souls, we just, let's just calm those down with just, just, just a little drinking, just a little bit, you know, just enough to to relax, just, just smoke a little bit, just a little bit of pleasure, a little bit of, of vacation, a, a little bit of just something that is going to numb the pain. And really, all four of those are dead-end roads. And there are many more that people take to try and solve this feeling of inadequacy in life, but all of those are vicious cycles that just lead simply to more pain, more problems, and they generate way more problems than they ever solve. But here's the good news. There is a better way to live. 
there is a better route to take, there's a better path in life, and the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of God's word is it shows us a way out of the vicious cycle, it shows us into a better way of living. And there are many, many places in God's word that speak to this issue of our pain, of our inadequacy, but we're just going to look at one passage today that I think gives us just an incredible message of hope, of wisdom, and of truth when it comes to how we measure up and the things that we feel in life. If you have your Bibles or if you have a phone with internet access, pull up the book of Hebrews. This is in the New Testament. It is one of the letters to the first church. We're going to have it in, up on the screen here, but I encourage you, if you're able to, also pull it up on something in front of you because we're going to be referring back to this several times. So I'm just going to read through this, and then we'll talk about it. Here's what Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says. Therefore... Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So these three verses say something incredible, not just of Jesus, but of us as well. And we're just going to go back through those three verses and just pull out some of the things that it's saying, that's telling us about Jesus. And then we'll go through it again and look at what is it saying about us. And we'll put the two together and then we'll see what hope, encouragement, what word it has for us today. So what does this passage say about Jesus? That's a great question to ask yourself as you're reading through the Bible. Well, there's a couple of names and titles that we see. A couple of verses in, it says, we have a great high priest who has ascended into, into heaven. Jesus, the Son of God. So Jesus is called our great high priest. Okay, what, is, what does that mean? Maybe like, I don't really know much about priests or things like that. This phrase, the great high priest, is referencing the Old Testament temple and the sacrifice there, where there would be priests who would offer up sacrifices on behalf of the people to God. They were the mediators between man and God, and they would perform sacrifices so that people could have their sins forgiven and they could be uh, connected to God somehow. But the problem with this system is because, one, the, the priests themselves were humans. They had failings. They had sins. So they were imperfect people themselves. Also, this was a very short-lived forgiveness of sin, right? The, the sacrifice of an animal only covered sins for, for so long and so many ways. 
but Jesus in the Bible is called the great high priest because not only was his death on the cross a eternal forever sacrifice for our sins, that he himself was like the lamb who was sacrificed for our sins, but because he himself was God, he can be the perfect mediator for us, that he, we have a direct connection to God, Jesus Christ himself, and that he has forgiven our sins through his own death, and we have a direct connection to God, our high priest. So Jesus is the great high priest. There's also a, uh, another kind of image and title we get of of Jesus, this idea of throne. You see in verse 16, let us then approach God's throne. Who sits on a throne? Who sits on a throne? What kind of people? Kings, thank you. Kings sit on thrones. So Jesus is not just described as a priest. He's also described as a king in the sense that he is in control. Kings are in charge, and Jesus is in charge. Through his death and his resurrection, he was not just the lamb who was a sacrifice for sin. He was the lion, the conquering king who conquered sin and death. And he, Jesus, ascended into heaven and is ruling and reigning over the universe. That's what it says in verse 14, that he ascended into heaven. So he is high and lifted up. He is mighty and exalted. But what kind of king is he? And what kind of priest is he? Well, it says that he empathizes with our weaknesses. And what's interesting, that word empathizes, the meaning is to suffer, right? That he has gone through and he can feel what we have gone through. Personally, Jesus, the God who became man, has suffered. He's been betrayed. He's felt heartbreak. He's felt hungry and alone. That he has felt weakness as a human being. But something unique and special as well. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. So he knows what it is, is like to wrestle with, with sin, to have that temptation, but he did not sin. So he is without sin, without sin, without blemish, the perfect sacrifice. And verse 16, it said that from the throne of grace, we have confidence, receive. We receive. So, if we receive, it means God gives, right? God gives mercy, grace, and help us in our time of need. And words like mercy and grace 
uh, our Bible words, right? We know these, but sometimes we just kind of read past them. They sound nice. We have like a general understanding of what they are, but maybe we don't really fully know. Like if it was on like an SAT uh, <laughs> test and there was like four options for grace or mercy, we'd just be like, oh, you pick C because that's most of the time right, right? So what specifically is mercy? What is grace? Well, grace is unearned favor, unmerited favor. It is the blessings and the favor of God that come with no strings attached and come not by what we earned or what we do. And similarly but different, mercy is undeserved pardon. It is a forgiveness a, a pardon, a compassion that equally was undeserved. And it also says that God gives help to us in our time of need. The idea of help is in someone coming to your aid. Not sending it from far away, not uh, wishing you well, but coming to our aid. So those are some of the things that we see about Jesus from this passage. That he's the great high priest, he's the enthroned king, that he, he empathizes, he has suffered similar to us, that he was tempted but without sin, and that he gives generously mercy, grace, and help. And if we were to read through this passage a third time and say, okay, well, what does it say about us? Because over and over in this passage, it's the word we and us, we have a great high priest. Let us then approach. This is talking about God's people, the church. So what does it say? Well, the first thing that we see about us is that we hold firmly to the faith that we profess in verse 14. That we as a church, as God's people, the thing that we cling to, the thing that we hold on to tightest is our belief and our faith in Jesus. Not in our traditions, not in our own accomplishments, not on our plaques hanging on the wall, not in our history, not in our balance sheets. We hold tight to Jesus, to our faith, our belief in him. Different translations even say the word confession there for the word faith. This idea that what we hold firmly to is not just this belief in God in, in a general sense, but the specific confession that Jesus is the Son of God. That it is that particular thing that we hold on to higher than anything else. That we cling to that faith and belief that Jesus is the Son of God. And because of that, all of the goodness of God, all of the blessings that come with relationship with God are ours. What else does it say about us? Well, if Jesus is the one who empathizes with our weakness, then we are the ones with weakness, right? This, there are areas that we have fallen short. And that is something that maybe we don't like to talk about. We like to talk about 
you know, around friends and family at holiday parties, all our best stories, all our accomplishments, all the coolest things we've bought in recently, all of our greatest vacations that year. But we all have weaknesses. And oftentimes, the things that we put forward in front of others is just a shield to mask our pain and our hurt inside. That without Jesus, we are completely lost and weak. And that we are tempted. We wrestle with sin on a daily basis. And without the strength and mercy of, of God, we are completely inadequate. Verse 16. Let us then approach or draw near to God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive. Now that word receive there, if you see it on your handout, if you see it in your Bible, if you see it on your screen, I would highly encourage you to circle it, underline it, do something if you feel comfortable. I don't like writing my Bible sometimes, but that word receive, I think is the most important word in this entire passage because it is the thing that we are commanded to do approach and receive those are the two verbs that we are commanded to do one to approach god confidently and to receive what he generously gives which is his grace his mercy and his help because ultimately there's two ways that we can live out life. We can see how far our own strength, our own smarts, and our own work ethic get us. Or we can boldly approach God as his children with a confidence that comes with knowing and loving him and receive. Receive his grace, his mercy, his help, and then see how far that gets us. And we can live our life not out of our own strength, our own power, but out of the grace and mercy that comes generously and freely from the throne of God. Because here's the incredible thing about Jesus, is that he did what we could never do to give us what we could never earn. And the Christian life is not about trying harder or doing better, but receiving what Jesus has already done for us, receiving his righteousness, his love, and living out of the identity and grace that he gives us as his children, as his church, to generously receive his grace. You know, I love breakfast. Anyone else love breakfast? Like, I really, really love breakfast. And I love going out to breakfast. I love going out to brunch. In fact, I think if I ever was like a millionaire, I would just go eat breakfast out every single day. I love it so much. But there's this thing that stops me from doing that, is that when I go in somewhere and I order a delicious breakfast and I eat it, they expect me to pay for it. Can you believe that? Right? Of course, right? Uh, I have to pay for my breakfast, right? But I have a wonderful two-year-old named Ivan, and he's a big boy, and he also loves breakfast, right? And when he wakes up at 5.45 a.m., he is ready to 
tackle the day, and he wants breakfast. But guess what? Buddy does not have to pay for breakfast because he's got a dad. He's got a mom who gave him breakfast for free, whether we're out at a restaurant or making it at home. And guess what? Maybe I should, but no. He does not have to do anything to get breakfast. I don't make him say his ABCs, his one, two, threes. I don't make him even clean up the toys from last night. He just gets breakfast because he is my son. In the same way, we get the goodness and the love of God because we're his children. And we don't have to earn it. We don't have to work for it. It is ours because he loves us and because we are his. So today, I challenge you to receive God's grace. Don't work for it. Don't say, you know, I'll just track up more things. Just receive it. What does that look like? A couple of things that maybe you would live out today. One, don't base your worth on your own standards. Let's say, unless I have a 4.0, unless I make vice president before 40, unless my kids make it into an Ivy League school, unless, unless, unless I am this. No. Because guess what? There is only one standard that God measures us by. There is one standard that God measures us by, and that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we receive that freely with his grace. So do not base your worth on your to-do list, on your paycheck, on your performance review. Live out of God's grace. The second, draw near to God in prayer. God's love, his grace, his mercy, these aren't things that just magically, spontaneously happen. These are things that God gives us through a relationship with him. And that relationship is cultivated with time with him. And one of the primary ways to do that is through prayer. And in this passage, this chapter of Hebrews 4, the whole context of what we read today is in the context of prayer. That's what we are talking about. What does boldly going before God's throne look like? It looks like just praying to him. That's what it looks like. Going and setting aside a few moments to pray, to open his word, and to receive what he has for us. And number three is just to live out of God's grace. Instead of getting caught in the performance trap of the to-do list trap, or just the next time life didn't turn out how you thought. That shot put just didn't go as far as you thought it would, and that thought creeps in. That's right. I'm just not good enough. I'll never live up to the expectation. I'll never be what my dad wanted me to be. Whatever that voice is from the enemy, you can say, no, I am a child of God, and I am everything in Christ. And you can live your life out of God's grace. Maybe as we've gone through this, there's something else that God is working into your heart. Uh, an idea that you need to let go of, um, a sin that you need to repent of, or just this reminder that God loves you. He has grace for you, mercy for you, apart from anything you have done or not done.
And as we move forward with Easter just two weeks behind us, we are always Easter people, that we live out of the resurrection of Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus is that our life, our faith, our eternal life, our temporal life are all because of him, his death and his resurrection. And our high priest who is on the throne gives us his grace abundantly. And all we do is receive it. And once we receive it, to live out of it. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love for us. God, when we feel tempted to measure our own lives or live out of our own power, may you remind us that we are yours and that our life in you is all we need. God, may you fill us with your love and your grace today. May we receive that. May we cherish it. May we love you for it. Thank you, Father, for this time. Amen.